In Acts chapter 11, we come to basically what is the third time that we are hearing this story. Uh, It's one of the reasons why we're not just going to read it all up front, because we've been reading this story for the last three or four weeks. And here it is, repeated for us again. It's repeated for us again. This story of uh, Peter, who is with, who is currently uh, in, in the story, he is a man who is staying with Simon a Tanner, a person who is working with animal hides and unclean nature, and he is approached uh, by Cornelius's uh, men who God sends to Peter. And just before this, Peter receives a vision from the Lord. We'll get into what that is in a moment. But like we've been hearing the story again and again and again. And so as we come to uh, the text this morning in chapter 11, we kind of have to stop and be like, why do we keep coming to this story? Like, what is the deal? What is going on here? Well, I think that Luke repeats this here for us for a couple reasons. One of the reasons is so that we might understand how important this incident is for us, how important this incident is in developing this broader narrative, this broader understanding at what God is doing at this time in the church. If you recall, up until kind of this point, it's been God has come and he has come to save the Jewish people. He has rescued them. He has paid the price and, uh, for their sins. And, and, and as we know now, for all our sins. But the previous thought is that the Gentiles would be saved, as we find in the Old Testament prophets. It's been foretold that they would be saved, that they would receive salvation. But probably the, the Jewish thinking at the time was that they would be saved by making their way into the Jewish lifestyle. That there's Jesus plus the Jewish rituals and, and uh, sacraments that they perform. But here we find both, uh, in the story, we find both Peter, who is a Jew, and Cornelius, this Gentile centurion, moving to this central place where they neither need uh, salvation through the keeping of the law, uh, for, for Peter's side of this self-justifying behavior. And uh, Cornelius, this Gentile man, doesn't find salvation through keeping the law either or becoming a, 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 gent- or a Jew. He doesn't have to become circumcised or keep these ceremonial laws or these uh, ritual washings. He doesn't need to participate in these things to, to be clean, to be a part of the family of God. And so, although these two men start off in different spots, they are making their way towards each other and ultimately towards Christ. They're both finding their ultimate satisfaction in Jesus. And this is kind of the story we've been tracking through um, the last couple chapters, or the last chapter, the telling of the vision again and again and again. And here we find this telling of the vision once more. Now, I don't know what it says in your Bible, but here's one of the other reasons that we find uh, for kind of the telling of this story once more. It's, of course, so that we might have a greater emphasis that this is really a pivotal moment, that this is something quite important. But here's one of the other 
one of the other reasons that we have this repeated again. We find the reaction of the Jewish Christians to what has happened. In your Bible, maybe you have at the beginning of chapter 11 some sort of title that tells you, like, what's this section called, right? And in in mine, maybe it's the same in yours, this section is called Peter Reports to the Church, right? And when you think about, like, reports, that could be, like, either something really good or it could be something pretty bad, depending upon what that report says. And you can often live in fear of reports. You know, maybe you uh, live that way throughout your elementary school career, like your parents are going to get your report card and it's like you're a little bit nervous, like, oh gosh. Maybe that extended on into later into life, you know, and, and there were some uh, There were some things that were tied to your performance. Like if you did well, then you're going to receive blessings. But if you did not do well, if you didn't perform well, then this report will reveal it and you will have to deal with the consequences. There are reports that we deal with in life, uh, that we have to deal with in life concerning our jobs. You get maybe a yearly performance review where they sit down and they look at what is your, the, the, uh, assessing your work over the course of the year. How'd you do? Where, what areas do you need to improve in? Right? And, and, and when you think about it, let's be honest, like, here's how it goes. Because we live in this weird, like, HR, like, controlled, um, like, era where, like, it's like, here are, here are the uh, thing, ways that you contributed and then also, here are your opportunities. Like, they never call it weaknesses because they're going to be like, oh, we're going to like straight up call you out. It's here's your opportunities, right? This is so weird. But the reason that they do that is because they are playing to your heart. They're wanting you to see that there is room for improvement. They're wanting you to see that there's room for improvement, but they don't want to show you how bad you really are. But see, when we come and we think about reports at the truest level, ultimately, they reveal what we believe. Ultimately, they reveal to the readers of these reports what we believe. And how you respond to that report reveals your heart. And in some instances, it reveals strengths, and in other instances, it reveals weaknesses. When we deal with the response to those reports in our lives, in your job, when you deal with your academic career, you're looking at your GPA, you're having to have a conversation with your folks about next steps in life, When you deal with that, they have to come with some sort of judgment and response. And how much, how you respond to that response will determine how you move forward. But the only way that you're going to move forward successfully, the only way that you're going to move forward in life and have the ability to overcome fear, worry that is anchored in the reading and responding to of these reports is through Christ. 
You see, Peter is going to report to the church this morning what has happened. And I'm sure he's probably a little bit stressed out on his way to talk to the Jewish believers about what happened. But the only way that he's going to make it through without worry or fear at the end of the day is if he's ultimately finding his identity in Christ. This is the only way that you and I can make it through all of life. Not just Peter here this morning, but the only way that we can be insulated from worry and fear, the only way that we can be insulated uh, from those feelings that other people are going to take our jobs or our positions, the only way that we can be insulated from that sort of, of depression, the only way we can uh, ins be insulated from feeling deflated at bad news is when we find our identity in Christ primarily. Here's what happens in Luke, or, or excuse me, Acts chapter 11. Verse 1, read with me. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So the church throughout Judea, they hear of what's happened with the Gentiles. They get wind of it before Peter gets there. So this means that they already are forming judgments. They're already coming to some sort of understanding about what they believe about it, and they're probably having conversations. When Peter gets here, we're going to deal with them like this. They're forming their opinions. They're ready to have a discussion, and they're passing judgment upon him before he even gets to speak. So how does Peter then respond? How can he, how can he deal with such uh, fear? I mean, I can imagine going into a meeting like that would be pretty stressful. These people already think something about me that probably isn't true. It's a worry I think that we all have. It's a worry that I think we all deal with. And so the church, they hear what has happened before. Verse 2, so when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him. They criticized him. So Peter, he makes his way up, and he instantly receives criticism. He doesn't get, hey, like, how is, how is the mission? What's happening? Let's hear of the good works of the Lord. It's a straight-up attack right away. Now, this attack is coming from his own people. This attack is coming from his own people. These are people who found identity in the circumcision party. These are Jewish Christians. These are people who are members of the church. And so they're saying, like, what are you doing? We hear of what, you, what you've been doing, Peter. We hear what's been happening. Instantly they come to criticism. Now, this is important for us to understand that they instantly start here because as Jesus's church, we want to be about the things that Jesus is about. We want to enjoy the things that Jesus enjoys, and we want to be a part, his, a part of his mission. And Jesus isn't a part of criticizing people right away. When Jesus has an issue, we're told that he works through the Holy Spirit to bring conviction. He brings rebuke through his church, but truth with love. It's never to bring criticism to the point of condemnation, and that's really what's happening here. The church is not acting in accordance with God's character. 
So before they even weigh like the issues and, and think about how they're going to respond, they're, they're automatically saying, you're, you're, you're breaking from our identity. Here's who we are, Peter, and you're doing something different, and this is a problem. So here's, here's what they say. They criticize him, and here's their accusation. You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Their accusation is that Peter, he went, he spent time with the Gentiles, he, he stayed uh, with them for a few days, he ate with them. That's kind of the result of like staying in someone's house, like you have to eat with them and eat their food. He slept in Gentile quarters. And so because the Gentiles are considered to be uh, dogs by the Jewish people, because the Gentiles are considered to be unclean, they're saying, like, what are you doing? You're in here, you're with these unclean people, and that's not who we are. What they're saying is, there's a clear divide between us and them. Us and them. Now, there is a place for divides. Jesus isn't against divides. Jesus says that there are, are uh, times when there are the sheep and the goats, the wheat and the tares. There are those who have met his need, and though there were those who will say, Lord, I was there, I was serving you, and he was like, I never knew you. There will be a divide between those who know Jesus and those who don't. But that divide is not up to Peter nor the apostles to bring their judgment upon. You see, earlier we've seen that Peter has extended uh, the message of salvation in Acts 2 to that huge crowd at Pentecost. And his sermon, the, the main thrust of it was, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. The bar is so low. Trust in Christ for salvation. Find your identity in Christ. That's it. The bar is so low. There's no additional requirements. Do a bunch of good stuff. Make sure that you've prepared yourself and come in the right manner. Make sure that you are acceptable before you come. Make sure you've got your life together. None of that. Because the way that Jesus works is he takes broken things and he makes them new. Not repairs them. He makes them new. You get a complete redo. That's how Jesus works. He's not about putting a bunch of band-aids on things. He makes you a new creation. And so, there is an us versus them thing that's kind of happening here. This circumcision party has found too much identity in their perspective, in their tribe. They're too much about being the circumcision party. They need to be more about Jesus. And so here's what happens. They make this accusation. You've, you've been with these uncircumcised men. You've eaten with them. The Jewish believers here, they're less focused on salvation for the Gentiles. They're like, we've heard what happened. They, they already know what's happened. They're, they're less like, hey, tell us about what's happened. They're like, here's what you did wrong. They're like, well, we heard of like all the crazy stuff that the Lord's doing there. Also, we have a question about this. 
That's not how it goes down. They go straight to the issue, the, the thing that's bothering them. Now, one of the reasons that this bothers them is because Peter is taking actions. He's living in a way that kind of tends to contradict what they believe. What it means to be the holy uh, people of God. What it means to be separated for God's purposes. But you see, when Peter responds, and we saw this earlier in uh, chapter 10, the Gentiles who are considered unclean are made clean through trusting in Christ for salvation, and then they are given the Holy Spirit. So the unclean is made holy through the giving of the Holy Spirit. Now, we see this reaction from these Jewish Christians. They react to what Peter did. And now as we come to kind of this recapping of the story, we can see Peter's massive wisdom in taking six people with him. Like, this was a brilliant stroke of genius. Uh, the Lord probably was like, dude, you need to take these guys with you. You're going to need them. Peter takes with him uh, these six men, and they can testify to what has happened. Now, in, in that time, in a court of law, you would only need like two witnesses. Three would be like amazing. Peter's like, I got six people up in here ready to testify on my behalf as to what happened. And so we come to the explanation here in verse 4. And this is basically, again, Peter recapping for us and recapping for his hearers, these uh, Jewish believers, the a condensed story of uh, Acts 10, basically. And again here, God is emphasizing this for us because this is an important uh, turning point in the early church. And we can see it kind of lingers for a couple chapters after this as well. But here's what Peter uh, does. Peter began, and he explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Verse 6, looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. So Peter brings the first little part one of his story to these uh, Jewish believers who are challenging him, who are criticizing him. Now, I want you to see here what happens. I want you to see what Peter's doing here, because this is an important uh, tool for us as believers when we deal with criticism, when we deal with people bringing accusations against us. This is an important tool for us. They bring this accusation, hey, you went to these uncircumcised men and you ate with them. This is their problem. Now, I want you to notice here in verse 4, starting in verse 4, how Peter responds. 
he does not respond to their criticism. He just doesn't even deal with it. They're like, hey, you ate with uncircumcised men. He doesn't say, well, here's like what, here's kind of like, you know, guys, you really need to like, just li listen to my story and back off. He doesn't come up with some sort of way to justify himself. He doesn't come up with some sort of way to defend himself. Instead, what he does is he looks for a theological response. His theological uh, response is the foundation. Because what Peter's doing here is he's going to the source issue. The source issue. He's not dealing with the surface issue. Oh, these guys are like super upset with me. And he could say some things to like maybe satisfy their, their um, problem. He could probably come up with some sort of way to make this make them happy. And he could maybe even come up with a, an explanation that wouldn't make them happy but would make sense to them. But what Peter does, instead of, instead of just taking the, the surface-level criticism, he presses into it and he sees that there's a deeper issue, a deeper belief that these men hold that needs to be challenged. And he helps them with this belief through the bringing of the gospel. It's, it's, it's incredible. This is how we ought to respond to criticism as God's people. When people speak against us, we don't just want to deal with the surface level criticism, but we want to find out, like, what is really behind what you're saying? What, what is really the, the source issue? What is real, why are you really upset? And then we want to see how the gospel is the answer to that. And we want to bring the gospel to light in that situation. Now, the best place to try this out is in the church, because we have a, a common gospel language. We have the common language of grace. And so when we sin against each other, we have an opportunity to press into the source issue and bring gospel answers to one another and celebrate Jesus together. So if you want to try this, I would recommend there. When we operate with this within the world, you don't have the common gospel language to bring that to bear within those relationships, but those, uh, this still understanding can help you learn how you ought to navigate uh, those circumstances out in the world as well. Although you might not verbally respond and bring the gospel to light uh, verbally to say, like, here's really what your issue is, your actions can demonstrate the gospel in response. You can lay aside, you know, all the things that you deserve, your rights, you can lay them down like Christ laid down his rights and serve others who are criticizing you, who are demanding more of you. You can be like Jesus in your response, even in the world. There's an opportunity to live out the gospel both inside of the church and outside of the church. And Peter, he goes straight to it. He knows what they need to hear. He himself has just come from the same perspective that they shared. He, his hearers, these Jewish believers, he was the one in the vision where the Lord was like, hey, Peter, I want you to rise and kill and eat. And Peter's like, no way, Lord. 
I'm not doing that. You know that my identity is wrapped up in the fact that I've never done that. That's who I am. And now you're trying to say, you need, like, I need to be somebody who I'm, I'm not. My whole life I've been protecting this. And now you're calling me out to do something different? Peter is one who has just made this transition. And so he knows that they don't need to hear just this soft answer. They need to be changed by the heart of the gospel. And so he continues on in verse 9, explaining his vision. As the sheet comes down, the animals are there. He receives this command, rise, Peter, kill and eat. He makes his response, you know, by no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. Now in verse 9, but the voice answered a second time from heaven, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times and all was drawn up again into heaven. So Peter, he wants them to understand that their identity in the keeping of these Jewish laws, in eating with uncircumcised men, in eating unclean food, it, this, this cleanliness that they're obsessed with, their holiness that they find in staying away from unclean things, it doesn't come from keeping the law. It doesn't come by their obedience to the keeping of these ritual washings or the, uh, the eating of clean foods, but rather this cleansing, this sanctification comes through faith in Jesus. And he wants his Jewish uh, believers to hear that salvation comes not only to the Gentiles in this way, but it comes to the Jews in this way as well. The Jews and the Gentiles, they receive salvation on the same basis, not by the keeping of this ceremonial law, but by trusting in Christ for salvation. It's the only way. And because of this, because they are both made clean through Jesus, then Peter's uh, natural thought is we can enjoy table fellowship together. If you ate a meal with somebody uh, in that time, it just meant that you had friendship with them, that you were uh, sharing in a relationship together. And so for the Jews and the Gentiles to have this type of relationship together was scandalous. But this is exactly what Jesus does. He brings down uh, this wall of separation and he brings these two parties together because neither are made clean through their own works, neither are made uh, are able to justify themselves, but it's only by salvation in Christ that they are to be brought together. And so he eats with them, he stays with them as an expression of this new shared holiness and this, of this new life that they have together, this new unity that they have in Christ. They're God's community of people. Both the Jews and the Gentiles, the nations, have been brought together. He goes on in verse 11, And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. So he's like, these guys, they rolled up after I got this vision. They were here. Uh, they, they were sent to me. Now, I want you to see one thing here. Notice that Peter doesn't even mention Cornelius. He doesn't give him a name. 
He doesn't give them a position. He just says, like, some guys were sent to me from Caesarea, which they would know. Caesarea is a pretty Gentile city. But what Peter does here is he keeps the rank and authority out of it. There's no way for them to say, well, you went, you, of course you went with them because, like, you know, he's a centurion and Rome is in charge of our area. So you probably went with them just to respect, you know, this authority and the call that was put upon you. He just keeps Cornelius completely out of it. He's like, you don't need to know who called me out of here, who sent for me. You just need to know that I was sent for by some, uh, by Gentiles. That's the only noteworthy thing about these men. These are some Gentile men who were sent to him from Caesarea. Verse 12, and the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. So Peter's saying, it's the Holy Spirit who directed me there. The Holy Spirit directed them to me and directed me to go with them. The Holy Spirit instructed me not to show any favoritism, not to show any partiality, not to, to say, oh, you guys are Gentiles, so I can't go with you, but specifically to accompany them, to go with them. He says, and the result is, I got six guys here. You can talk to them like they were there to testify at what happened. They're able to authenticate the entirety of this experience. Verse 13, and he told us how he had seen an angel stand in his house and say, send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter, and he will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. So here we find now uh, this description of how these men got there. And this here for Peter is confirmation, and he's trying to relay his confirmation of the directing of the Holy Spirit. Notice how he does it here. He says, first, this person in Caesarea who sent for me, an angel appeared to him. So there's like kind of that first thing, like, there's some divine authority behind this. Somebody showed up and asked for, told him to ask for me specifically. A messenger from God told him. And the second authenticating factor is that uh, of Peter's message that he's supposed to bring is that God wanted him to offer the Gentiles salvation through faith in Christ. He's like, he says in verse 14, not only did the angel show up, but he said he's going to declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. Now, for those Jewish believers, that can only mean one thing. Because you can only be saved by trusting in the name of Christ. So they're not going to be like, oh, so you're going to be saved your whole household. Well, we've got the Gentile track over here. This is the Gentile option where you guys need to be saved a different way. If they've already made the confession that there's only one way that you can be saved, that Jesus is Lord, trusting in the name of Christ for salvation, all that Peter has been preaching for Acts and all that the church has believed in for the entirety of Acts, now why would they offer something different to the Gentiles? And so Peter says, look, the message is that I'm supposed to offer them salvation. Now we find further uh, affirmation of this uh, point in verse 15. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. So Peter anchors 
their acceptance into the family of God in their receiving of the Holy Spirit. He says, just like we received the Jews, just like we received the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, just like Jesus told us, you know, we should go and we should wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit. They, too, have received the same thing. They've received the Holy Spirit as well. Now, this would demonstrate their acceptance of Christ, and it would demonstrate their acceptance into the family of God. One of Christ, because the Holy Spirit indwells only Christians. He only comes and abides with believers. But secondarily, this, this uh, demonstrates their acceptance into the family of God because it is God who gives his Holy Spirit. If you recall, the Jews were waiting in that upper room there at Pentecost. They were there. They didn't know when the Holy Spirit was going to come, and they didn't do anything to trigger the Holy Spirit coming. It was God who gave the Holy Spirit to them at his appointed time. They couldn't do anything to say, like, okay, we're ready now. Bring it. They couldn't, they couldn't do anything special to call the Holy Spirit. And here, likewise, if God is the one who gives the Holy Spirit to his people, it could only be God who empowers his people with his Holy Spirit. So what he's saying here to these Jewish Christians is like, look, this is not my thing. I just showed up and I rolled with it because this is what God was doing. I'm rolling with what God's doing. Verse 16, here's what Peter says. And I remembered the word of the Lord, right? This is great. References Jesus. So he's like, look, like we're all about Jesus. So just so you know, here's what Jesus said. I remember the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So Peter refers back to something that they would all be familiar with and that they likely all heard verbally. What Jesus' exact words are in Acts chapter 1, verse 5. It's like, this is what Jesus said would happen. Why are you guys all upset? Why are you all surprised? Like, you should have seen this coming. So he refers back to Jesus' own words to help them understand, like, this is exactly what is supposed to happen. Now, Peter finishes this way in verse 17. Stick with me. If God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? This challenge is similar to what he posed uh, earlier in chapter 10. Peter went to the Gentiles he proclaimed the gospel. The Holy Spirit came upon them. And these other, six Gentile, or these other six Jewish men who were his companions, before they could object to like, hey, what's going on with these guys? Peter jumps in there and he's like, what prevents these men from being baptized? He's like, they've received the Holy Spirit just as we have. He's already used this tactic before to help these other six men understand like, hey, they're, they're a part of the family of God too. So why would we withhold baptism from them? He's already used this before, but now look at how he applies it here to the Jewish believers in the church. 
he says this. If God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? Peter makes the point that it was God who did this. It was God who accomplished it. It was by God's work. It wasn't by human means. Peter didn't roll up and be like, okay, here's the Holy Spirit for you guys. Okay, you got to come over here if you want the Holy Spirit in this way. Boom. He's like, no, like I wasn't a part of this. I, I couldn't start it and I couldn't stop it. Who was I to stand in God's way? And he brings this charge out to them. By applying it to himself, but he's simultaneously laying it upon his hearers. He's saying, who was I to stand in God's way? Now, of course, they're going to be like, oh, yeah, you definitely should not stand in God's way. There, no one's going to be like, oh, you should have stood in God's way, Peter. You should have got in there and said, like, oh, you're doing it all wrong. This is not the plan. You, you're blowing it, God. No, nope, none of these guys are going to say that. And so simultaneously, Peter's also helping them see, like, you guys probably shouldn't stand in God's way. If God is the one who did this, who accomplished this, he's warning his hearers that they're potentially starting to move into the place of resisting God and hindering what God wants to accomplish. Now we see some of the response here in verse 18. When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. So they glorified God. They affirmed the inclusion of the Gentiles. And it's important for us that we see here that they are affirming the inclusion of the Gentiles. And I think this is one of the other reasons why Peter doesn't say, let me tell you the story about Cornelius. Because then they'd be like, okay, Cornelius and his household are in. Everybody else is out. God like clearly wants Cornelius in, but nobody else can come in. Peter brings it to them in a way to help them understand, like, this is a bigger work. And by recognizing this, by making this confession, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. They're making this broader confession that there are wider implications than just Cornelius' family, just one household. This is for everybody. Now, they make this confession, but living this out practically is pretty hard. It's pretty hard. We've already seen some issues come up, not even with the Gentiles, but we've seen with the Greek-speaking Jews earlier in the church. Uh, earlier in the book of Acts, we've seen that the, the Greek-speaking Jews, they had the Greek culture and they dressed differently, they had a little bit of a hard time. And they were, their, um, their widows were being neglected in the daily food distribution. 
And they had to like speak up, and then the apostles had to come together and formulate a plan to meet those needs. And it was based around injecting the gospel into that situation. It's not easy to navigate this, even though they're making this confession. And even though doctrinally they believe these things to be true, the people who look differently than them, who act differently than them, there's still going to be a question for them in the back of their mind, and it doesn't end up getting resolved until chapter 15. So some, some things still kind of stick out for them in their minds as they got to kind of come together and talk about it a little bit more. They're like, okay, you guys are in, and they're excited about it, and they're glorifying the Lord about it, but there are still some lingering questions to be answered. But for both the Gentiles who are being incorporated now, the apostles, Peter, and the leaders of the church, and for this group of Jewish believers, the circumcision party here, as they're called, The only way that they will navigate this successfully, all three groups, is through the gospel. It's through looking at Jesus, at seeing him clearly, at responding to him and what he has done. The apostles need to see that this is God's work that he has done, he has accomplished. They need to be reminded of all that God has done for them. That their sin was before God's eyes. Even though they appeared to be clean because they were keepers of the law, yet Jesus still had to come and pay the price for their sins. And so they, like the Gentiles, were unclean. The church needs to see, just as Christ reached out to them in their uncleanness, now they also ought to deal with the Gentiles who they consider to be unclean in that same manner, welcoming them, helping them learn and grow and be sanctified. And then the Gentile crew, of course, they need to trust in Christ for salvation. They need to believe the gospel. They need to repent of sin. They need to be sanctified. But in the midst of that, they're probably going to get mistreated by some of the Jewish believers. They're probably going to get mistreated because these men and women are growing together in the church and they come from different backgrounds. And so they need to believe the gospel. They need to believe the gospel that they can be like Christ, and Christ knows what it is to suffer and to be abused and mistreated. And that Jesus paid the price for the sins that are committed against them and the sins that they are tempted to commit and want to commit against others when people treat them uh, poorly, when they mock them, when they act uh, against them sinfully. It's only the gospel that insulates them from acting out in revenge. It's Jesus who pays for all sin. That sin that they might be tempted to uh, deal with with the the Jews against the Gentiles and maybe this uh, racist sort of way or this discriminating way against these different ethnic backgrounds. And it's also the gospel that has to be injected into these 
uh, people who are being discriminated against, who are being treated differently because of their background, because of their upbringing, because of their culture. It's the gospel that protects them from acting out in response. Because it's Jesus who ultimately pays for all sin. And the only way that you can navigate through life, the only way that you can get through these sorts of reports where people are making judgments that are not true and people that are making assumptions about what the result is, is Jesus. Everyone in the story, all of us, we just got to look at Jesus. Home base again and again and again and again. It's the only way that we navigate life successfully. We have to guard against the temptation to use Jesus as that means to an end. Because there's a temptation to say, okay, well, you know, I'm going to deal with you on this basis because Jesus. But Jesus isn't the goal there. It's like basically saying like the goal is for me to like get through this interaction or this exchange. But when we make Jesus the center, when we make Jesus the end instead of the means, then we can grow together. We can admire the Savior together. And ultimately, that's where we want to go. That's what Jesus died for, so that we might see him more clearly together. If you fast forward to the end of the Bible, this is what it ends like, with the nations gathered together, worshiping the Lord. It starts off like that, too. It starts off with like God's people in a garden together with a relationship with him. And then sin enters into the picture. And then at Babel, the nations are just broken up because they, God told them to scatter and they didn't. So he's like, okay, fine. Like, you're all going to get languages. Boom. You're out of here. And there's just been all this confusion and problems. But at Pentecost, we see the nations coming back together. When the Holy Spirit comes on the scene, oh, the nations are there again. They're speaking Uh, all in this angelic tongue and they can understand each other. The nations are being brought together and God is recreating what he started with. And it ultimately ends in the garden city again with the nations worshiping Jesus. It would be wonderful. But it's only the gospel that gets us there, setting our eyes on Christ and moving forward day by day, looking at him. It's the only thing that insulates us, not only in these sorts of situations, but also dealing with the reports that we have to deal with in life. People making false judgments about us. Finding your identity in Christ allows for you to navigate storms when people are saying things that are untrue about you, or maybe are true about you. Maybe you are just a super lazy worker and you take too much vacation. Maybe that's totally true. Or maybe you are in a position where, you know, you've gotten to where you are by cheating the system. 
And maybe that's totally true also. But it's the gospel that insulates you, that keeps that from being who you are. It's Jesus that allows you to repent and change your life because God doesn't look at you in that way, but God looks at you as perfect, living a life that is perfect because it sees Christ's life in your place. Your identity is in Christ, not in other things. And when you find your identity in Christ, those sorts of things, like being a lazy worker or cheating to get ahead, those sorts of things go to the side because Jesus comes inside and changes us and transforms us and makes us like him. The gospel insulates even those who are strong, hard, faithful workers because then you can't say, oh, I got where I was. I, I put myself here. I did all this. Sure, maybe you put in some hard work, but that's not who you are. God doesn't care about your work in that way. To, that, that work's not going to save you. He cares about you being a faithful worker, but that, that's not going to do anything for your righteousness, your right standing before him. The Bible tells us that all of our works, our attempts to justify ourselves, are worthless before him. Only our identity in Christ is what matters. It's the only way to insulate your life from storms, from trials, from tribulation. You're going to go through them, but you'll weather them well. You'll, you'll, you will suffer well when you find your identity in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for your kindness to us and that you've given us Jesus, that you've given us wonderful life in your Son. And we pray that you would help us, Lord, to lay aside our own identities, the things that we're tempted to build our life on, the things that we're tempted to be uh, known by as just like our primary thing, our primary uh, descriptor of our life. Lord, we, we, we don't want to be known by those things, or we want to first be seen as members of the household of faith, we want to be seen as your children. And Lord, would you help us, Lord, if our, our identities have become wrapped up in our jobs or our careers or hobbies, whatever we're working in or working toward, Lord, would you help us to move those things out of your place to a lower position We're thankful, Lord, that you never fail us. We're thankful that you never give up on us. We're thankful that your love for us never ends. We're thankful, Lord, that you live forever. You rule and reign, and so you are the one identity that cannot fail. And so, Lord, we ask that you would be working in our hearts to change us and transform us and make us more like your wonderful Son. Work in us, Lord, through your Holy Spirit. We love you. Amen.